Welcome to Untold. In this enthralling episode, Parava talks about her early career and formative years in India. Hailing from a small town, equidistant between Delhi and Jaipur in Rajasthan, Parava followed the family tradition in attending boarding school from the tender age of four and a half. The passionate delivery of a career counselling session by a visiting lady when she was in year eight resonated strongly with young Parava. It led to the decision post-convent school and fully supported by her family that Parava was to attend Mangalore, specifically Manipal, which was India's finest hotel school. Following the best three years of Parava's life, it was time to enter the world of work. This led to her coming up with early mantras, which were discipline and dedication are here to stay, as well as bring the best version of yourself to work each day. A productive management traineeship with International Travel House included many overnight shifts at the airport and concluded following the sampling with Parava determining that her path was to be via sales and marketing as opposed to operations. The episode concludes in Delhi with Parava sharing insights, learnings and experiences from her progressively senior roles across the world's top luxury hotels and brands and their growth in India. The focus on luxury training was particularly technical and included the presentation of business cards, an in-depth understanding of design, wine, and how to sell rooms north of $800 per night through expert storytelling. Another few sound bites that encapsulate these years perfectly included, I stuck my heels into the ground and said I'm not giving up. And talking about the power of networking, I constantly reminded myself, people need to know Parava, they need to know me. Enjoy, untold, incredible Parava. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining today, Parava. Looking at early life, can you tell us a little about growing up and, and where you were from and some of your early life experiences that, that were formative and led to you giving some thought to a career in travel? Thank you, Gareth. Uh, absolutely humbled and delighted to join you today and talk a little bit about um, what I've done so far. So yeah, I actually uh, hail from a really small town. It's called Alwar. It's in Rajasthan. It's really midway between the two big boys of Delhi and Jaipur. Uh, both my parents hailed from there. I was born there. Uh, so there is a lot of element of uh, the Rajasthan rich culture and heritage that flows into the small town I'm from. Uh, the early years actually, uh, like I said, it's small. So we went to boarding schools to study. So as a family tradition, uh, starting from my dad's generation, then my aunts and uncles and everybody. So we went up to the hills to study. So I went to a boarding school when I was all of four and a half. I didn't realize what it meant then. Uh, but now as a mother myself, uh, I can imagine it would have been pretty tough for my parents. Um, but I think those years were very, very, very enriching for me as an individual. I shaped myself as an independent young kid very early on. And my family has, until now, a very, very strong influence. So the combination basically became independent, but also family-rooted um, values and principles, which I think I, I feel very happy about. Uh, and when I actually was in school, we had a career counseling 
session when I was in grade eight, it was an all girls convent school. So anything from the outside was, wow, okay, we've got a new career counseling session. But in that career counseling session, as cliched as it may sound, uh, hotel management was thrown up as an option for us to explore. So grade eight, all of say 14 years old, I heard that lady talk with passion of that opportunity and I just clung on to it. I, I could relate to it even at a young age. And this is an absolutely true story. Um, and since then I started thinking in my mind that, oh my God, this sounds like something that would keep me excited. Uh, I didn't know the nitty gritties. And at that time, honestly, we'd not been to hotels. There weren't many hotels in India and stuff. Uh, but one thing that was evident when uh, this career counselor said, you'll always be surrounded by people. So I said, okay, that works for me. Um, and that's, uh, I think, something that I still enjoy doing. So really from the early, early schooling years uh, to uni and so on and so forth, uh, I thought that travel and tourism uh, is something that besides having the you know, knack and always the interest of talking to people, uh, I also have the travel bug. So I said, you know what, better than carving out your career in something that you truly and genuinely love and are passionate uh, about. So yeah, I like to travel. I like to interact with people. Um, I, 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 do, I do think all of that complements. And my family has been very progressive despite being from a small town. So that I think encouraged me to flap my wings and really experience what I wanted to do. And yeah, so that's that's really the last 25 years of my travel and tourism career, basically, how it started. But I will tell you a little anecdote. I didn't take my first international flight till I was in my early 30s. You won't believe it. So India was a large country. We just traveled within. And mostly it was uh, road trips. You were going up to the hills. You were going to the beaches. Everything was in this nice car, more like a van. But yeah, I, I took my first international flight, which was very uh, liberating in more ways than one, to attend ITB in Berlin. Well, four, four and a half for boarding school is extraordinary young. Did, did you then used to go home a couple of times a year, or would that be every weekend? How, how would the actual boarding school process work? Because it's very common historically in the UK that someone would go away at possibly 11, but not, not as young as four and a half, I don't believe. Yeah, so, you know, uh, at that time, there was no age capping to take kids in. And, this, and Alba really didn't have quality schooling and education. And my parents really believed that's the foundation of anything and everything that one would ever do in their lives. So, yeah, I was packed off. Uh, the holidays were interesting. So we had three months in the winter when it was snowing up in the hills where we would come down home. Um, and then we had two weeks of summer break. So summer break, we would just spend up in the hills. It didn't make sense to come to the Rajasthan heat in the month of June, as you probably know, uh, sweltering at 15 degrees Celsius, but largely came home once a year for three months in the winters. Fantastic. And ITB, ITB, lots of listeners will have visited, but I don't think too many people would have broken their flight cherry flying to ITB. So uh, that, that's an interesting part of the story. You then went to Mangalore University to study hospitality. Um, when I looked up Mangalore, I was really surprised by how relatively small it is compared to you know, um, Mumbai and Bangalore and some of the other cities, it's, it's only around the same size of Cardiff population wise. But it, when I was in the UAE, it seemed most Indians in the hospitality industry I met were from Mangalore. So I was just wondering, can you talk a bit about your university time and, and the reason why potentially internationally, there's so many people that have spent time in Mangalore? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I can tell you I'm smiling cheek to cheek. Uh, uni years, uh, I think, were probably the most unbeatable three years. Uh, while they were formative, uh, there was fun. There was also finding your true calling. 
So it was a combination of many things when I look back at Yoni. So Mangalore is still a relatively small or large place. Let's see how we look at this. But the town where my hotel school or the hotel school I graduated from was located is a town called Manipal, which was really a education town, a education hub. So that town had nothing but colleges and unis. So you had hotel management, you had uh, medicine, you had nursing, you had engineering. So safe to say that 90% of the population were students. Mm -hmm. And what that really meant is you do your graduation from Manipal or Mangalore University and subsequently you uh, do your master's from there because it, that place just gave you all that opportunity right there. And uh, to, to, you know, to your notice that UAE and the Middle East rather has a lot of Indian population in the travel uh, industry from Manipal is probably like from years and years, people have studied there and passed out and now are probably working somewhere else. And the other thing you know, to bear in mind is back then there weren't many hotel school options. There were just very, very few let's say maybe five or six in the entire country that were of repute. So where do you go if you need to do hotel school? So you probably land up in a college uh, in Manipal and you're affiliated then under the larger banner of uh, Mangalore University. And it, because it's an education town, even today, however, uh, it's evolved. I haven't been ever since I graduated 25 years ago, so I don't know what that feels, but, um, it's, it still remains to be a young and small town of uh, people who basically hinge their careers starting from that point. And therefore, uh, this explains the uh, disproportionate uh, travel and tourism, you know, sort of surge of people uh, into the Middle East from Mangalore University. And, you know, also, also when we were graduating, uh, while all of us did hotel school, the aviation sector in India was just opening up around the time. So a lot of people, it just made a natural, it just moved naturally for people from hotel school to you know, join the aviation sector. So people were flying around and stuff like this. So, and you know, you come back after a few years of doing that stewardship role uh, back to hotels and hospitality. So I think that's, that's the basis of uh, having a widespread uh, alumni in my world at least spread across Middle East. I can think of a lot and a lot of friends who are there. Yeah. Thank you, Parava. Post-graduation, you secured a trainee role with International Travel House, working on incentives that had prestigious clients like Mercedes-Benz. Is it possible to tell us a little about how you felt and how you learned in this introductory role and uh, some of your great times in that? Yes, sure. So that was uh, that was my first job. So it'll always remain dear to me, as one can understand. Um, I was selected on campus as a management trainee uh, by International Travel House, and it was extremely varied in terms of functionality. So you're absolutely right. Incentives was one division, but then we had Eureka. We were selling car rentals. Then we had outbound tours as it was called back then. Uh, I was on the ticketing desk for months, you know, the good old days where you actually wrote a manual ticket and ripped out coupons. And I'm not giving my age away here, but you know, we had a ticketing desk. And also interestingly, Travel House had outsourced services to a lot of luxury hotels in Delhi back then where you have hotel counters, more like, more like the travel concierge, you know? so. Uh, this was really the bucket of opportunities that came along with International Travel House. And as a management trainee, you were just parked every two to three months in different departments, which I thought really was a sound platform for me to explore what really holds my interest and how I need to learn a bit more about cars and stuff like this. So I think the, uh, the foundational year of uh, being a management trainee at Travel House was rewarding in more ways uh, than one. And, you know, while it was an introductory role, it was, like I said, the first job. So 
it became a bit more serious than doing internships, right? And very different uh, to the uni or college life. Very, very early on, I learned that discipline and dedication um, are here to stay. You need to be the best version of yourself every time your shift started. And at that time, as a management trainee, I was doing the you know evening shifts, which you start at 8 p.m. and wind up at some 4 a.m. or something like that. So, you know, also because it was a heavy traffic time in Delhi, as you probably recall, Garrett, most international flights come past midnight. So, you know, just looking at the psyche and the nature of business, I was like, oh my God, there is a lot of hard work that goes in and you start appreciating it when you're really, you know, really, really working. And of course, the first check of the job is always fun to receive. So uh, I think the introductory industry role gave me a very wide uh, experience very quickly. I won't say it was deep experience, but it was wide. I knew what the travel ecosystem looked like early on. It's a great opportunity for sampling, lots of different uh, different roles. On the topic of incentives, um, it's, it's huge business globally, but none so much as obviously India, and that's from industrial companies to automotive, what are some of the nuances of the industry and what would you advise to any company that would want to grow the lucrative and fast growing market of travel incentives out of India? Yeah, so um, I'll start actually by saying that uh, the Indian market has been generating incentives uh, in the version that we know now. But I think for a fairly long time, safe to say in my uh, working tenure, they may have been called different things, but the customer has been traveling out. Uh, so I'm going to put perspective here to the growing and the lucrative Indian market. We've got to bear in mind that India is an extremely diverse country. Uh, and to garner opportunities of the Indian business, that needs to be equally diverse. So one solution is not going to fit or uh, provide solutions across the same scenario. Uh, so that's really understanding why is it different to have Indian customers, Indian incentives, Indian groups, regardless of how we term it. The second aspect, just the word incentive probably gives it away is it's very specifically associated with positive pride and also a sense of achievement, which makes it even more exciting for the receiver of this business opportunity to provide and cater to that EQ quotient, if I may, of the traveler or the group. It's not, it's not straightforward. It's not a conference. It's not uh, a sales meet, for example. The purpose is completely different. Um, and then you put in or you layer it in with diversity, uh, you have a, a, a sort of task at hand to have a successful incentive. Um, and there is further complexity, like you mentioned automotive for one, for example, there are MLM companies, there's um, ph pharmaceutical companies and so on. So every company and every industry sector has their own nuances too. So, you know, the, the, the output of that incentive is not that straightforward any longer. So as a DMC or a hotel partner, you need to really look at a fair amount of moving paths uh, to be successful in this arena. And the other thing about the Indian, um, Indian culture mentality, and I'm gonna say this with risk, is uh, the word of mouth appreciation or lack of it thereof is extremely critical. Uh, people will ask people, uh, where did you go? How was your stay? Uh, those barriers uh, don't exist. So, which means that you've got to really deliver your top game uh, because you will, if not much, 10 people to 100 people will know about this particular business. So it gives, it gives various flavors for partners or vendors or hotels to actually cater to um, incentive or largely group business uh, from the Indian market. And, you know, going back and touching a little bit about diversity. So let's say North India and South India, 
regardless of the physical distance and the miles that they are physically apart, they just are so different on multiple levels. You look at food, you look at clothing, you look at dialect, culture, the way just we, the way we look, you know, they, they, they look different and so on and so forth. So I think one thing to bear in mind, my experience tells me is, while it's good to have experience if you've handled an Indian incentive earlier, be, 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 be absolutely prepared to get a different flavor, a different fly on the wall when you're dealing with your next incentive. It's not going to be a straightforward, simple approach. I've done one, I can do the other one. Uh, and, and a critical need to know is Indian food is a must. We love our Indian food. Uh, we, we eat everything, but we need Indian food. And that I have seen uh, has actually been a deal breaker to the extent I've actually worked in a few incentives myself where we have flown chefs along with our groups to say, you know what, you need your food here, your chef goes with you. You can't get better than that. Uh, while the appetite for exposure and travel is absolutely uh, at the brim right now and more so the last year has been tough and the pent-up demand everybody's talking about is here to stay. But uh, I think food is a key, key, key component where you've got the food right, I can safely say you've won, won half the battle. Um, you know, the other thing uh, about Indians, and I'm a proud one at that, that, we love negotiations. We just love negotiations. It's, it's, not, it's not once we've spoken, the deal is done. We just do like to go over things a couple of times. And I've had hotels in my career, international hotels come and say, oh my God, will this ever stop? No, it's not going to stop because we rarely take no for an answer, which means it could be pretty draining uh, if you're not prepared for that level of uh, negotiation or that level of detailing very early on in the business discussions. You're not waiting to close the deal and then discuss food, for example. You start discussing food and then I may close the deal. So, you know, this whole, whole uh, it, it's like a paradigm shift if you're particularly wanting to penetrate uh, the Indian market, which is actually very profitable to be fairly honest. So, you know, you, it, it, you need to look at it from both sides. Uh, the other thing about the Indian customer is um, there is a sense of urgency. And I see this a lot in myself, even for small things now being in Singapore for a few years. I really like to know things fast. I really like to get things done fast. Now, don't confuse this with punctuality. That's a different discussion altogether. <laughs> but just the sense of urgency is, I think, an early win if a vendor or a hotel can provide that uh, uh, opportunity. And, and you know, lastly, uh, well-known fact, we are the second largest population globally. Just multiply those opportunities and see what could come out. So it may sort of sound like a sales pitch, and I've done this many times before, but I always tell DMCs or international hotels, if you're interested in this, piece of the pie. Be prepared. Learn. And, you know, there is no stop to this because the market's here to grow. You know, our, our demographics are really sitting in the right quadrant, if I may. And there is going to be growing opportunity. And the hotel industry and the travel ecosystem on large, not only the hotel industry, is here to benefit from this growing Indian business. That, that was fantastic. Thank you, Parab. I remember the, the nuances of the market you presenting over in India a, a number of years ago. And, and like you said, it, it really needs to be an immersive hotel. They can't dip, dip their toe in, dip their toe out, really need to make sure that everything is aligned from culinary to approach to negotiation. And, and obviously the, the rewards are there for the hotels which do approach the Indian market, all, all guns blazing. Following on from your incentive and your graduate trainee role, you then moved hotel side. Um, and did you feel that that was always likely to be the prefer preferred route in tourism? And then what were you, some of your best memories and learnings as you 
cut your teeth in New Delhi in progressively senior sales roles? Yeah, so I, I will, uh, I'll tell you honestly, I always wanted to be in the hotel sales and marketing side of the business. However, back in the day, that was nearly impossible to get through. You know, you had sales and marketing stalwarts who had been in those roles 20 years, 18 years, 19 years, and there was no room for a newcomer. So that made me think, oh my God, I did hotel school. I love this business. Um, I want to work in sales and marketing as it was called back then. And um, what do I do now? And that basically from the process of elimination meant either I take up a role or a job in the hotel operational side. Um, and with no disrespect, uh, that really did not hold my interest at all. I said, I'll be shortchanging myself very early on in my career and I wasn't prepared to do that. And then the natural outcome was, I love to travel, the travel house opportunity that I've shared just now actually gave me, um, you know, a, a plethora of uh, avenues to look at for the travel system. So always wanted to be in hotel sales, went to the travel house. And luckily for me, it all worked out really well because when I actually moved after 18 months of my management training program in a hotel sales, uh, I had a little bit of context and knowledge of what really happens on the travel side. So uh, it, it worked for me. However, the early roles in the hotel industry, I can tell you besides having all the fun, uh, this was some serious, serious hard work. Um, my sister may disagree. She always thought that we were not working and just prettying ourselves up for these nice cocktails in the hotel. Um, however, this was, this was long working hours, uh, a lot of dedication, and one had to be really uh, determined to make a place for yourself. And I was really working uh, with that goal in mind from the start. It, it may sound after years, it's easy to say, but I, was, I had to constantly remind myself that if this is what I love, people need to know me. Seeing the seniors of the industry who had been there for like, God knows how long, and there's still names to reckon with, by the way. So, you know, you say, oh my God, if they can do it, I can do it. So what do I need to do? So I think the early years uh, in hotel sales was more about just keeping my eyes and ears open. Uh, you needed, or I, I actually, I don't know how, but I can say this about myself. I think I had relentless energy. I just, looking back, I just did not get tired easily. And it was like this rigmarole of, Performance, challenge, performance, challenge, hard work. It was a very potent mix. Uh, I stuck my heels into the ground and I said, I am here to stay and I'm not giving up. So I think that in my mind uh, really worked for me. It wasn't easy every time. There were really, I mean, and we can be talking about this for days at end, some really unreal circumstances. And you were like, this is not what I signed up for. And the next morning you said, no, oh my God, I'm going to actually go and do what I like to do. So I get this job. I'm a hotel sales executive in a team of some 48, 50 odd people. It's a downtown hotel. Uh, in fact, it was the first Hilton in India. It was Hilton, New Delhi, 500 keys. And I'm like, okay, I'm here, the new kid on the block. I'm in sales, what do you want me to do? And I remember my boss at that time, who's today a friend, she turned around and said, oh, here is a stack, which was really the, you know, 20 inches in height uh, of business cards. Can you sort them out alphabetically? I'm like, oh my God, I didn't go to the best hotel school in the country for this. But, you know, you really start uh, at the lower end of the ladder and try and and figure it out. And I did dislike her for many years. I'm like, seriously, this is not what I know. And, um, and now she's a friend, but those were also lessons that came along in that package of the early years. And um, it, yeah, it really, it really made me, uh, 
made me keep going every day and it still excites me i i do miss going to the lobby all dressed up and meeting customers that handshake that coffee that chat it is exciting well i can vouch for your relentless energy that's for sure you you gracefully progressed from management to leadership and director roles with through the Oberoi Shangri-La and then at one of Asia Pacific's finest hotels the Imperial um so how did the sales process and how did some of your approaches change and when you look at a property like the Imperial how would you position or sell what indian hospitality is like on a global stage well just just overall garit this was a very um intense and interesting phase for me um after working in my first hotel role which i spoke about uh i actually left hotels and started my own business i ran that for 3 years um had my daughter at that point in time uh and the business that uh i started was basically a professional conference organizing company so it really gave me an opportunity to be the customer um and gain the wholesome view of the trade so you know i done a very very little bit of travel a little bit of hotels and now i'm on the customer side actually sourcing uh hotels and destinations as a venue that experience gave me and you know obviously it wasn't easy to do your own business i can tell you that while there were rewards for sure it was just tough i missed i missed the hotel discipline and structure so here i was back again uh, and financially it was pretty tough uh, you know to be managing your own business to be fairly honest all of these aspects just said oh my god my true calling is hotels and uh, yeah so my daughter was 8 months old and i joined the obra new delhi at that point in time in sales fortunately so i think the following many years of my career journey uh, naturally happened to be the luxury sector it wasn't it wasn't designed it just happened by default uh and looking back i can say i really enjoyed it because it it was just so different uh the industry was evolving the customers were new to this type of luxury uh there were suddenly there was a relatively younger layer of leaders which the industry had not seen so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of freshness in what was happening in the luxury side of the ho- uh, hotel industry and what is absolutely true is and i'll be biased in saying this that indian luxury is really pure it's authentic and it's truly second nature to many this is how we are you know imbibed with values from a very young age it's not it comes naturally i can say that and not only india but a lot of uh, asian countries and we've heard and read that before um every every hotel brand that you mentioned obviously uh, has enriched me in many ways but the common thread was all these hotels and brands actually spent unreal amount of time curating unique experiences uh the sense of rush to get going uh was actually secondary the sense of being a differentiator was primary uh three hotels and only just talking about these three brands and i know you know i worked with them like you said uh there was a you were pretty much immersed in these brands as a sales person you want hired and after a two day hr induction you want thrown at the deep end to go start selling you were truly taught how to sell and i'll give you an example i remember so when i joined the obra new delhi uh one of my bosses at that time and again he's semi mentor dear friend uh my sounding board he actually also taught me how to present a business card he said this is how you do this at the obra okay how do you present a business card to different people from different cultures 
How do you present a business card to people who are senior in terms of age or hierarchy? So he was a director of sales. What I'm trying to tell you is the leaders actually invested a lot in the people in terms of training. Uh, and you, you really felt a part of that story. That was our role. I, and, and this is the other one, right? At Imperial, which you've been to, I know, a couple of times. Uh, absolutely spectacular. Um, unbeatable repetition on many fronts. And we had a general manager when I was in the sales team there. And uh, the business was international markets, right? That's what Imperial was known for. And uh, even then, to be fairly honest, it wasn't easy to sell a hotel room for a night for $800. So we were told $800, take it or leave it and maintain a relationship and be professional and keep smiling. So, you know, these were the subtle challenges thrown at us. And this particular GM actually expected the sales folks, which is all of us, to know our wines. I mean, like, you're like 28, 26, you have nothing to do with wines. You don't know what, what wines are. But his logic, which later on obviously was well received, not at that point in time, was if you don't know luxury, you can't sell luxury. If you don't experience luxury, you can't sell luxury. So, you know, we would stay at the hotel to experience the same service we were selling our customers. So there was a lot of authenticity that was built and driven in. Uh, and I think this went on for years and years and years. So training in my view, I think is a basic pillar um, of success just on the people side, because you know you can have a beautiful product and architecture can be you know absolutely top notch. Uh, but we all know that it has to be really, really the people that deliver that experience or make that memory and so on and so forth. So, there was no room to say no to your guest. You had to find a solution all the time. Uh, there was no, um, you know, there was no, um, there was no no. <laughs> it was just you had to do this. And when customers started experiencing this service once, twice, they started coming back, the customer expectations started to soar. This became just the new norm of sorts. And it was simple uh, economics, right? In my mind, and I would tell my teams later, the customer pays you the top dollar and they expect that experience to be top notch. That's how the world goes. It's end of the day, it's a business that needs to be profitable and have a brand value and have repetition. So these were uh, just some very defining years of my career and all coupled with luxury when you look back. Uh, I had also the opportunity of being in the sales team when Oberoi Hotels launched their resort collection. So the Raj Villas, the Amar Villas, and I am telling you, we would stand in the lobby for hours just taking notes. You had to curate your own story. And you know, you were young, you were like, oh my God, this is not worth it. And I'm, I remember I'm looking at Uday Villas, the dome in the Udaipur resort, and we are actually noting the color of the dome. Oh, it's a matte gold, which still is actually. And it gave us so much power to talk to our customers when it came down to talking. Uh, so it was investment of time, trust in the team. Uh, and, and, and I'm only giving you sales or marketing examples and stories, right? So the same was happening for food and beverage, housekeeping, IT front desk and so on and so forth. So um, I think uh, the Indian hotels or the Indian luxury hotels do luxury really well. Simply put in my world. Uh, so we have a friend here in Singapore and we met them after a year like everybody else did. And I'm like, hey, what are you missing about you know all this lockdown? What, what do you really miss? He's saying, I don't know what I miss, but I do know whenever India opens for us to travel, I want to go and stay in a particular luxury hotel for a week without my wife. I want to be pampered. So, so people relate Indian luxury to being aspirational. And this is absolutely true. So yeah, I think there are a lot of signatures, uh, signature uh, deliverables that the Indian luxury hotel industry uh, has to offer. 
uh, and it's here to stay. This is this is how it's done. There is no other way in my mind, at least. It's really interesting to hear you talk passionately about your time at Oberoi, Shangri-La and uh, the Imperial, because there are a lot of parallels be be between what you're saying and a recent guest I had on with Andrew Hughes. And the point where you're talking about spending all the time in the lobby to learn about the dome and, and everything else, a point he made is you can have a PR department and you can have resort stories, but your resort will only succeed or fail on the basis of your storytellers. So as you've articulated so well there, India has, particularly these properties you work, great training and great abilities so that everyone knows the attention to detail and the intricacies that, that make it possible for the stories to be told to customers so that they actually understand you know, the, the nature of the hotel, the resort or the product. How did your leadership and management style evolve, Paravo, as you, as you progressed in terms of seniority and started to work at hotels and resorts that had more international guests versus domestic Indian travelers? Looking back uh, and truly reflecting, uh, I, I feel my roles naturally transitioned me from the startup years or the early years, not really startup, it means different today, but the early years uh, uh, to then the mid-management and then eventually leadership. I, I can say this with humility. I think I kept my core traits as an individual really intact. Um, I like to believe, though can be debated, but I'll go with my view here. Uh, I, I remained personable uh, and I remained passionate. Uh, I did not hide my emotion, which back then was quite tough actually to do. You know, you were on your own and stuff like that. Uh, I was very open. I think that uh, that gave me confidence. Uh, they want secrets. You won't find many, uh, you know, skeletons in the closet. And that gave me the ability to bring my original self to work simply every day. And also, you know, when you're at a hotel, the hotel leadership position, uh, whether it's on the operational side or the commercial side or the GM, um, it's pretty much, you are the captain of that ship. You know, you may be in uncharted waters, you may have fun, but you'll re reach that destination. That's how I figure this out in my own headspace. But as you move on to do more complex roles, uh, this anal analogy may not work entirely well because these are complex roles for a certain reason. The other thing I think what evolved or how I adapted was, uh, like I said earlier, I have always kept my ears and eyes open. Uh, I'm truly, truly blessed to have worked with some of the most finest leaders. And in my view, uh, it's not really the popularity of the leader that sticks to me. It's the uniqueness and the, the trust and the openness of the leader that makes me, you know, sort of look at them in awe and say, oh my God, I wish I had 10% of this. Oh my God, how do I develop this for myself? And that for me is uh, inspirational. And I think I took something away from each leader that I worked with and I tried to fold it, it fold that trait, aspect, learning, communication style, long, long list in my own situations and make it my own. So I think that was, you know, the third thing that just kept me relevant. Um, every time teams were changing, leaders were changing, brands were changing. I moved around a lot, as you've probably seen in the early phase of my career. Um, just just the hunger to do more and learn more kept me just going. Um, and it worked, uh, you know, like there, there was a time at home, my mom would say, oh my God, don't tell me you're changing your job again. So I said, I've thought this through. So, you know, that, that aspect and hunger of learning worked really well for me, like I said. And I think, you know, in my in my view again, uh, Gareth, I my leadership style. I, I I really want to label my leadership style. 
as much, but I can say safely, it's, uh, it's inclusive leadership. Uh, I am open to the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, I want to, I, I do, and maybe I want to continue doing, I think I inspire my team. That's what I have heard genuinely for a fairly long time. Um, and I lead from the front. I don't shy away from tough decisions. I don't shy away from tough conversations. Uh, so I rather, I'd rather demonstrate than preach is my approach to things. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's like the practical exam and the academic exam. Both are critical, but one will stick further more to you than the other. So I always believe like if the team sees me do things which are tough to deliver, they will take away some part of that positive intention like I have from my leaders. So I think it's, it's really in my mind a give and take. I keep learning from my leaders and hopefully the teams are learning from me. Um, and that really brings me to the other aspect where I think leadership, not only mine, but just any sort of leadership where there is trust um, and complete flexibility. Uh, I had no problems breaking the rules if it was logical in my own view, right? So I give complete flexibility to my teams to perform. The goalpost is set, that doesn't change, but how do you get there within, you know, ethical principles and guardrails? I really don't, uh, you know, don't get into that detail because that's for you to figure out. So I'll tell you, I was at a particular hotel and I was the director of sales and marketing. And this hotel had a legacy of doing something which still annoys me partially, an evening debrief, which meant 50 people have gone sales calling through the day. That was the size of my team at that time. 50 people come back in the evening in one Excel report, record what they did. And then me as the leader will sit with 50 of them and hear about what their day was all about. Like, but this is counterproductive. Haven't you plugged something in, which means that I need to read when I have time? Or we don't plug that in and we just hear from you. So, you know, I, I took a call. I said, we're not doing these evening debriefs. It's like an hour and a half, 50 people, seriously. I'd rather be driving back home. And I had quite a discussion with my GM at that point in time. Again, a very, very fine Irish gentleman. But he said, don't, don't make too many changes too soon. I said, I get that concept. But if the 50 people an hour and a half each day do the math, that's a lot of man hours. The team was delighted and I'm not exaggerating, but I thought the sentiment and the output was so much better. We just can debrief. This will not happen. It nearly became like a bad word. So I think the team sees these things and it's okay to challenge status quo. If, if it's been happening for a while, not necessary, it's right. Things change, people change, time changes. So I think all of these things club together is how I, how I really manage or lead a team. Um, I, I, I like to really distribute, I won't say uh, delegate, but distribute responsibilities. One leader cannot do everything, I know that for sure by now. So, I think that also loops in the team and there's a sense of ownership when you start distributing key deliverables to them. So I think all these things coupled uh, coupled together is, if you've got these elements one way or the other, you're in a good shape and a good place. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's on really the leadership style. And what happened when we started talking about international source markets, I already told you my ITB story, right? Um, so I land ITB Berlin and Gareth, I cannot tell you, it was an eye opener. I had attended ample trade shows in India. Uh, and we have a lot of people in India and you know, so the, just the size wasn't it, but I think the pace of the show and you've done many yourself. So you can, I think completely relate the knowledge bank of that show, just pure geniuses and experts. And what was absolutely outstanding in my view, the power of networking. What did that really, really, really mean? Um, 
I came from my little hotel sales leader hat on and I said, oh my God, everybody knows me in my neighborhood. But when you come here, you're like, ooh, this is a different, different ball game altogether. And I said, I made a promise to myself. Uh, I said, oh my God, when I'm back here next year, I can't be feeling this way. People need to know me and I need to work for that. Uh, so I think it was more reflective in nature as I started, you know, sort of working with international clientele or international source markets. Um, and I said, you know, next ITV, at least four to five people should know me well and be looking forward to meeting me. Um, yeah, and I, I can say with humility that was achieved. But what I'm trying to say is it, it was hard and consistent work to grow your network. So I think specifically for international source markets where you don't have the opportunity now, well, any, nobody in the world has opportunity for face-to-face -face today, but just generically pre-pandemic, uh, you can't meet these people face-to-face. -face. That coffee ain't happening for one year or six months or till the next show for that matter. So uh, I think what do you do to remain relevant in the international source market is a lot self-driven. So during my reduced work hours, like I shared with you sometime back, I wrote an article which I posted on LinkedIn, just the power of networking. How do you network? What, what does it mean? Why is it important? Uh, I think that aspect for me shrinks borders. Uh, you know people, you talk to them and now thanks to Zoom, Teams, WebEx, WhatsApp, Google Meet, and God knows what all, it's become easier. But um, I think the traditional face-to-face uh, -face networking uh, will bounce back very quickly whenever anybody is given the opportunity. So I think that's the approach I took to handling international source markets. I had to be known. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed episode one. Please keep a lookout for Spotify, Apple, or on Red Circle for the release of episode two with incredible Parava. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.